Good morning. Let me try that again. Good morning. There we go. All right. <laughs> My name's Adam. For those of you that don't know, one of the pastors here. For those of you that do know, means you're probably here week in and week out. Thanks so much again uh, for being here. Uh, we end our series this morning. I am looking forward to it. Uh, this morning's topic is a series that has been a deep part of my spiritual wrestling and journey over the years. So um, my prayer is my, my prayer all week has been that uh, you are blessed and encouraged this morning uh, with, from the scriptures. Before we jump into the message, I want to mention one thing. Uh, Amber Pavalko, some of you know her. Some of you have been um, kind of walking with her and praying for her. She has kind of a life or death, if you will. I don't want to make it too extreme, but it's a big surgery uh, this Wednesday. It's a 12-hour long, I'm told, surgery. Um, her parents' life group, uh, Tom and Sandy Martin lead that, and they just came up with this great idea to do a prayer vigil for this Wednesday to make sure she is covered in prayer all day long throughout that surgery. Uh, they're encouraging people actually to come here to the building, and Chris and I throughout the day are going to get updates and bring those updates in here as kind of to be praying for her throughout the day. Uh, so if you would like to take part in that, either here or maybe say, I can't make it here, but I'll commit to a certain time of the day. Out in the foyer uh, following this service, Tom and Sandy, you'll see them a little table out there. Uh, just head on over and uh, put your name down for a time slot. They would greatly appreciate that. I want to thank you for that. Well, that said, let me pray. I want to open up and pray for Amber. Pray for you. Pray for us uh, as we try to jump into this subject this morning. That's, that's, a, that's a heavy one, but I think a good one. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, that song we just sung, I Will Rise. God, those in this room that are Christians, God, it says that you are in us and we are in you, in Jesus. Isn't that cool? Cool thought. God, so as you died, we died. As you rose, we rose. And we have life. So God, would you help us this morning as we wrestle with the subject of shame? Help us to live that life. God, for those that are here this morning that maybe came with the invitation of a friend or a guest or maybe they just were searching and found us, um, God, I, maybe they're not walking closely with you or not even sure they're a Christian or maybe it's their first time in a church. God, I pray you'd speak to them as well. God, thank you for their willingness to be here with us. So God, encourage us all as we just explore what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning we wrap up our series Inside Out. We've just been kind of talking about some of the darker emotions. And sometimes when it comes to darker emotions, we aren't always sure what to do with them. It's one of the things we've been saying. And a lot of times when it comes to the darker emotions, fear, anger, uh, depression, sometimes we think, well, you know what, let's step in and fix it. As opposed to, yeah, okay, we want to sometimes fix it. But the real heart is, is let's step in with the emotions and ask, man, what do these emotions say about who God is and what I'm doing with him? This morning's emotion, we're going to wrap up because I think this one drives many of the other uh, darker emotions. Uh, Shame. Dan Allen and Tremper Longman, the book Cry of the Soul that's guided some of how we've laid this series out. uh, They say it this way, no other emotion better portrays hell than shame. Think about that. That's, a, that's an extreme statement. So think about that. You think about it because Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Ultimately, shame robs us of intimacy. It robs us of just kind of that awe and wonder, and it robs us of joy. It also stands behind many of our darker emotions. Uh, a lot of times, anger is a, what's called a secondary emotion. A lot of times, I feel anger, but lying underneath my anger is this thing called shame. Or at times, lying underneath my depression or my fear actually isn't fear itself. It's actually shame that's triggered the fear. So shame is a powerful one. 
Now, before we open up the scriptures, let me kind of share a few kind of examples of where we see shame uh, in our lives and see if maybe you don't relate to some of these and, and we'll kind of then work our way into the scriptures. Uh, maybe it starts this way. Uh, sometimes we'll look in and we'll see a really strong, competent leader. We look to him and say, man, if I could be like him or I could be like her, it would be awesome. They run a successful business. They have a successful family. They, and you look at them and think, man, they got it together. They speak so well. But when you sit down and talk with them and listen to their heart, deep inside they feel like a small child. They feel worthless and inadequate. They have this kind of voice that says, you know what, I'm never going to amount to anything. Another version of shame might be the person who ends up on the short end of a divorce. You know what I found with divorce? (laughs) No one ever wants it. No one walked in the front of a church like this and said, I do, thinking, man, I want to get divorced someday. I've never known anyone to do that. So maybe you're in the short end of a divorce or you know someone who is and they wanted it to work and now they're on the outside looking in and they feel that rejection, they feel dirty, they feel bad, they aren't even sure what they feel, they just know I don't feel good. Add to that, a lot of times with divorce, they live inside of family systems or church systems that sometimes raise divorce as kind of like this cardinal sin, like this unpardonable sin. And so then those that get divorced then carry this everyone's judging me kind of feeling. Maybe it's not divorce for you. Maybe it's you got fired or you lost your job or you can't quite keep a job. And you're always wondering, will my resume ever be enough? Or maybe for you, you know, you got married. Maybe you're newly married. You get home and all your friends are joking with you about, wasn't it a great honeymoon and all this, all this talk. And you're inside thinking, I feel dirty. Why do I feel dirty? Married sex is supposed to be incredible and beautiful and I feel dirty. Why is that? Uh, Maybe for you, it's just the fact that you're different, noticeably different. Maybe you're a lot skinnier than everyone else or a lot taller than everyone else or a lot heavier than everyone else or you've got a complexion that others don't have or your skin color is different than everyone else or your personality is different than everyone else and you always just kind of feel different, wrong, like I don't quite measure up. Shame is that general feeling of I'm not enough. I'm wrong, and I'm not quite sure why. Shame then, in turn, leads to hiding, to covering up, to lying, to self-deception, to sometimes self-harm. We'll we'll, uh, standing behind self-harm and cutting and some other things that can be done is shame. It leads to a feeling of I'm exposed. Ultimately, shame, the voice of shame says, you're a fraud. You're a fraud, Adam. You're going to stand on stage today. And deep inside, you're a fraud. That's what shame says. Now, the reality with shame, something happens. We feel it, and it's dark, and it's ugly. It is kind of the emotion that portrays hell. And we think, man, I've got to get rid of this. So we set out to get rid of it. Many of us, because it's good to get rid of. I want to get rid of this. But we get spiritually reckless in the process. Two ways we get reckless. I want to mention, then we'll dive into kind of where we're headed this morning. Job 40, verse 8 says this, you will discredit, this is God speaking to this guy named Job. I'll lay the history out in a minute, but let me read the verse first. You will discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you are right. Will you do that? Now, Job was a guy who had it all together. He worships God. He loves God. Satan shows up and says, of course, God, of course, of course he worships you because you've blessed him. He has an incredible family. He has unbelievable wealth. He has incredible business. He's got all this stuff. Of course he worships you. So God says, take it from him. 
See if, see if he loves me, truly loves me. So Satan steps in. Many of you know the story. It's a kind of a gruesome story. He loses his, his kids. He loses his home. He loses his job. He loses his wealth. He, he just has everything wiped out. The only thing he has left is his wife, and she's not real encouraging, so you almost wonder what would have been better off without her as well. Now, it's not, it's, I guess it's kind of a funny thing. So he sits down throughout the story, and he's wrestling with what has happened what have I done wrong? God, what's going on? So, so roughly 30 or so, 38 chapters of this, just wrestling, talking. Who is God? What have I done? And finally, out of the silence, God steps in and says, hey, Job, let me ask. And he lists this. It's a powerful chapter. Question after question. Questions like, hey, Job, who made the earth? Were you able to hang the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky? Hey, hey, Job, can you grab Leviathan, some think it's the dinosaur, by the tail and control it? Hey, Job, and he rattles off these hard questions that ultimately answers, no, God, I can't. And then he says this, will you discredit my justice and condemn me so that you can be right? So in other words, here's a lot of times what we do with shame and good. We get spiritually reckless and we redefine who God is. We sit and pontificate on what he might accept and what he might allow. I mean, you see it in our culture. You know the things that people today are saying, it's okay. God's okay with this. And you're like, no, wait a minute. No, he's not. Well, a lot of times we'll rewire who God is trying to make us feel better. The other thing we do, there's a flip side. The flip side is Galatians chapter 5. This is written to Christian people. This isn't written to people trying to become saved, become Christian. This is written to people who are believers in Jesus. It says this, for if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. That's scary. You have fallen away from God's grace. So the other side, one is we rewrite kind of who God is. The other side is I'm going to work really, really hard to scrub away this shame so that I can get back into God's good graces. God says, no. You can work all you want. It's not your work that connects you to me. It's something far deeper and more beautiful than your work. So again, we kind of get spiritually reckless when we try and get rid of our shame and our guilt, and we go at things in a, in a kind of a dangerous way. Now, let me make one note here. I, when I say shame and guilt, sometimes, if you're familiar with this subject, sometimes authors and speakers will split shame and guilt as two separate things. I don't find the scriptures doing that. I see the words interchange. I know you can see some distinctions between the two at times, but I'm going to kind of use the words interchangeably for my purpose today. Well, that said, this is a huge subject, and we have a lot we could tackle in this one. So I wrestled this week, and here's kind of want to boil it down to if I could impart one thing in my journey with this thing called shame, here's it is. It comes from Psalm 97. We're kind of building this out of the psalm. Psalm 97 in the ESV says this. All worshipers of images, say it with me, are put to, see that? See where shame comes from at its core? If you worship something that is not God, you are going to be put to shame. The verse goes on. So all worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Then the statement is worship him. All you gods. In the New Living, in the translation, it's in the pews in front of you. This verse reads this way. Those who worship idols are disgraced. All who brag about their worthless gods. For every god must bow down to him. As I think about this, here's the real heart of shame. The, the core of shame. 
probably the definition I like most with shame. Shame is an internal wake-up call that exposes that we, or I, am worshiping a God who is not God. All of us try really hard to say, we're okay. I'm okay. I'm justified. I'm righteous. I'm okay. And then we start living for things that define us and give us worth and value and significance. And a lot of it is really good stuff. Maybe it's your family, your kids, your marriage, your job, your career. And we start looking to this stuff and it begins to be the thing that gives us life, that gives us worth, that gives us value. We do that to say that we're okay. And then we feel bad. A lot of it's because we're clinging to something other than God himself to make us who we are. To give us the life that we so desperately want. So shame is ultimately... Not a result of poor self-esteem. It is not the result of a bad family system, a bad church or religious system, or a bad social system. All of those things are important, and they do play a role. If we did a whole series on shame, we'd probably take a week for each one of them. However, ultimately, rooted with shame is the preference to trust something else for my everyday existence. Something other than who God is. Here's the real goal that we're going to go after this morning. We want to get to this point, Psalm 34. Again, kind of building from the Psalms. It says, I look to the Lord. This is the opposite of shame. I look to the Lord and he answered me. And he took away all my fears. They looked to him and their face shined with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord stayed close around those who fear him. And he takes them out of trouble. Is that what you want? You're like, yes, that's the opposite of shame. A face that radiates joy. That you look at and you see a contented peace. You see a happiness that you can't be explained. Even in the midst of trouble and heartache, you look at someone and say, wow, that's what we want. So how do we get it? How do we go about it? We're going to try and unpack this morning. Again, with the thought that shame exposes what we worship. Ed Welch uh, wrote the book, Shame Interrupted. It's not the greatest book in the world, but it has some really good stuff in. Um, Very helpful things. Uh, Here's one of the things that I just love that pulled out of the book. It says, when you feel relentless condemnation and you don't know where to go for forgiveness and cleansing, you look for a way to prove your innocence. So when you feel the shame push in, you think, man... I don't like it, I want to feel good, I want to feel innocent, so we'll just work like crazy to prove we're innocent. I see the two ways we do this. We judge others and we judge self. We judge others by saying, wow, look at them. Oh my goodness, did you see what they did? And what we're really doing is we're trying to say, wow, I wouldn't do that. We do this to escape judgment. We do this to escape condemnation. Well, since we're congratulating, we're saying, way to go, Adam. I would never go down that road. What a loser. Or we judge self. Here's how we judge self to actually erase shame. We try hard to be good. But the reality is, no matter how hard you try, you're going to do something poor. It's a sin. Guaranteed. Every one of you is going Some of you might be sinning right now as I talk. It's just the reality of life. We do it. So as I, as I sin, and I realize I've, I don't want to, so we work hard. So then what we begin to do is we just turn inward and get disgusted with ourselves. We judge ourselves. Oh, Adam, you terrible, horrible person. 
And then we begin to do things like this. We make promises. Oh, I will never do that again. I'm going to get rid of my phone. I'm going to this. God, I'm going to this, and I'm going to that. And we make all these promises. It's an author that I've looked to and respected says it this way. Promising God what you will do instead of relying on what he has promised to do turns you into the promise maker and you unintentionally edge God out of his role as promise maker. God's promised you something. He's offered you life. And so often what we do is we judge self. I'm so disgusted with myself. God, I am going to make a promise and I'm going to stick to it. And what we're really doing is trying to find a way to say that I'm innocent, I'm okay, I'm good. Well, are you? Are you really? Turn with me to Psalm 32. Apologize, let me back up there. I skipped a slide. Don't read that one yet. Psalm 32. Actually, that is supposed to be up. Man, I'm way off. Let's put that up. (laughs) As you're turning to Psalm 32, scripturally, the bigger danger to our eternity is not bad behavior, but any good behavior we use to establish our own righteousness. You ever thought about that? Some of us zero in on the sins that we commit. Let's eradicate all the sins. Sometimes it's not our sin that we need to worry about. It's our good deeds. Because sometimes our good behavior is actually flowing from a place to try and make us good. It's called self-righteous. I do anything I can to make myself okay, and it'll separate me from my God in the end. Now, Psalm 32, page 466, and the Bible's there in the seats in front of you. We'd say if you don't have a Bible, grab that one and use it. Uh, we'd even say take it home with you. Uh, it's your Bible. We will replace it and make sure there's one there for next week. Psalm 32. Now, here's what Psalm 32 is. Psalm 32 is written by a man named David. I'll just to give you a brief history of this, because some, some of you know the story, but those of you who don't want to bring everyone up to the same place before we jump in. David was a king of Israel. He was called, said to be a man after God's own heart. However, there's a season in his life where he should be off at war, but he's not. He's hanging at home, kind of taking it easy in the palace. And he looks down out of his palace window one day and sees a beautiful young lady. He's like, man, she's good looking. Now, David's an old guy at this point. So David sends for his servant and says, bring her to me. He gets her, sends her home. He gets word the next day, hey, David, I'm pregnant. He freaks out. Uh-oh, I can, she's married. And her husband is out serving in the military for me. So he calls the husband home. And if you've heard this story, calls the husband home and says, hey, you're awesome. You've been doing so good. Take a break. Go kick it. Kick back and relax. Enjoy an evening with your wife. Thinking, ha-ha, then we can say it's your baby. He doesn't do it. He won't do it. He says, I won't dishonor myself this way. I should be out with my fellow countrymen serving. David freaks out. He's like, well, this isn't good. So he sends him back out to battle with a note to give to the general. The note says, place this man in the front of the lines where the battle is the fiercest and he's sure to die. Now he's dead. David sweeps in on the white horse. Look at the great king, merciful to this horrible situation, this widow that's grieving. He's going to now rescue her and make her the queen. And it's this great romantic fairy tale. And we're going to ride off into the sunset and no one will know. Well, except God knows. And God reveals to a prophet named Nathan who shows up. Nathan shows up and tells him the story of a a man who abused his power and mishandled uh, someone of a poor individual who didn't have a lot. David gets really angry. Remember, we judge others to to justify ourselves. David says he needs to be dealt with. Nathan says, it's you. In that outgrowth of that story, 
comes two psalms, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, both written roughly a year after um, the adultery was committed. And here we go. So this is a guy that is guilty of adultery. Some in this room would say, that's me, I've done that. And murder. And probably there aren't many, if any, in this room that would say, yeah, that's me, I've done that. Maybe. But two big ones. Here he goes, verse 1. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Capture the, the, that third word there. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Whose sin is put out of what? Sight. God said, I've gotten rid of it. Yes, what joy. There it is again. What joy for those. Again, those that are not filled with shame and guilt radiate joy. It's, it's all throughout this. Whose record the Lord has cleansed, the rest of verse 2 of guilt. Whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Because I'm not hiding anything, God. It's, it's I've been clean on this thing. Verse 3, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. Can I share something? Shame and guilt does not just impact you spiritually. Shame will sap you of life and energy. It will run you down and run you ragged. And the greatest way to find healing, to find mercy, is not to hide and to judge and to point fingers and to try and dodge and to try and cast doubt and so that the jury, you know, excuses. And the greatest way to find mercy is to just simply confess and be honest. Verse 4, day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And let me say this about God's discipline. If you're his child, he loves you. He will discipline you. Now, it's hard for us as Christians to say, oh, wait a minute, God's loving and God is good. Why is he going to discipline me? Because he loves you. In his discipline is mercy. We have a hard time with this for whatever reason. But his discipline is merciful. His discipline seeks to restore you. His discipline is going to include his promises of, of healing and restoration. I would also say this with this verse. Sometimes we find no relief from shame because we insist too strongly on our own innocence. There's some in this room, at times in my journey, I wasn't finding relief because I wasn't willing to go to the dark places and name the idols of my heart that needed to be named. God's in heaven going, Adam, Adam, can you look to what you're, can you see what you're looking to for life? As long as we claim innocence at times. Now, not all shame and guilt runs because of my sin. Sometimes it runs because of, of we're going to get to some other things. Verse 5, jump back in with me here. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. Again, shame runs and it hides. It tries to cover up. It tries to pretend we're okay. And David just says, I couldn't. I can't cover up. So verse 5, in the middle of it there, I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. If you've confessed to God, truly and genuinely, you are clean. Do you believe that? It's a hard one for us to get our head around. Now look at verse 6. Verse 6 this week, for me, one of the things I love about being a pastor, I love this. One of the greatest gifts of preaching is what it does to my own soul. As I sit and study and pour through stuff, man, here's one that came out and came alive for me this week. Verse 6, therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time 
that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. Here's what jumped off the page. If you look at verse 5, I want to pick up the continuance of this. Finally, it's verse 5. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. You see the word interlude. So it's like, so the team is playing their music. You're singing the songs. You're reflecting on it. Then the, the bridge comes in, and it's just the music, so you can reflect. And then it steps back in. Therefore, let all the who? What's it say? Who's to confess? Pray. Therefore, let all the godly. Do you know what shocked me? My heart didn't think that's what that should say. You're like, no, wait a minute. Let all the godly pray. Let all the godly, that, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. Now, wait a minute. Let all the godly, you know what, you know what I thought should have been there? Let all the evil, let all the mockers and slanders, let all the gossipers, let all the, let all the bad people, let all the sinners Hear this cry so that they repent. That's not what it says. It says, therefore, let all the godly. You know my definition of a godly person is? A godly person is someone who, is no, who just knows that their righteousness, their goodness depends on nothing except for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's a godly person who fears him, who loves him. A godly person knows that they're going to sin. A godly person knows that a sinless life this side of heaven is not possible. A godly person doesn't run and hide and shove everything under a rug. A godly person steps out in the light and finds hope and healing and grace and mercy. I loved it. It's actually the evil person who runs and hides. Now, verse 7, powerful statement. Verse 7 continues. For you are my hiding place. Look at the promises of this. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. Again, the interlude, soak it in, take it in. Verse 8 steps back in. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathways for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule. I love this picture. <laughs> that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. That's I think, really captures us. And here in eastern Lancaster County, as we see the horse and buggy all over the road. Some of you see those things get out trying to get out of control, and you watch, the, watch them there yanking and pulling that horse rearing back and wanting to do its own thing. He says, don't be like that. Find the freedom of life in me. Now, verse 10, many sorrows come to the wicked. Again, you're going to live wicked. You're going to struggle. But unfailing love surrounds those who what? Look at this with me. Surround those who trust the Lord. Verse 11, so rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy. There's this picture of joy. All whose hearts are pure. Another thing came off the pages to me here. Absolutely just shocked me. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but uh, verse 10, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all who obey him. Here's what shame has done to me over the years. This has been a gruesome animal for me to wrestle down. But shame has done this. Okay, Adam, I know God's grace and mercy and his forgiveness. It is real and it's alive. But, but I'm not obeying. 
but I'm not doing what's right. Maybe I have all this mess because I'm just a bad person or I'm never enough or I'm never quite a. And we have this thought of, okay, God, I hear you, but I'm not obeying. So I'm, I'm not really going to get your blessings until I obey. So in other words, what happens, those of you who especially are rooted deep in shame, you're going to read verse 10 and 11 and you're going to miss verse 10. What's verse 10 say? It's a promise. But unfailing love surrounds those who what? It doesn't say unfailing love. It does not say unfailing love surrounds those who obey the Lord. It doesn't say that. Unfailing love surrounds those who what? Trust the Lord. Do you know what's interesting? Christians are called believers, not obeyers. Have you ever thought about that? You aren't called an obeyer. You don't walk around and say, I'm an obeyer. You say, I'm a believer. What's the difference? See, you trust a promise, you obey a command. God is a promise-making God. God is a God that says, I love you and I'm for you. I'm full of mercy and grace. Come out into the open and you will find rest for your soul. It's a promise. It is a promise that he makes, rest. Now you say, but Adam, Adam, I'm not obeying. You got to obey, you got to obey. Well, here, here's, let me reconcile this a minute because this, this faith and obedience piece is what a lot of times drives shame in our religious communities. Let me just try and in a real short way sum this up. We tend to overlook God's promises. We focus on his commands. Now, here's the deal. Not obeying. If I choose not to obey him, I'm going to go out and live in sin. It says right there that I'm going to have a tough life. Verse 10, many sorrows are going to come to me. I'd also say this, it has a deeper, harder consequence. What sin does, if I repeatedly live in sin, I repeatedly live in sin, I repeatedly make choices that I'm not dealing with, I'm not being honest with, it hardens my heart. It sears my conscience is the way the scripture teaches it in Timothy. And you know what's dangerous about that? The heart is the organ of belief. Romans chapter 10 says, from the mouth we confess and in the heart we believe. So I continue to make poor choices. I continue to sin. It actually cycles around and it hurts me because it's going to make it very hard for me to then believe and trust his promises. Does that make sense? But the reality of obedience is it's not my obedience that erases my shame and guilt. It is my trust in his promise. It is me simply looking and saying, God, I confess, I trust you for your grace and mercy. It's trust. I find far too often we live as if what Christ did was not enough for me. It's got to be more. Again, that's why I'd come back to shame is an internal wake-up call that simply exposes that what I'm worshiping is a false God. It's not God. What I think I need to have life, great marriage, great kids, great church, great job, all great stuff. But it's not life eternal. 1 Corinthians 13 says this. I want to kind of bring the plane in for landing, if you will, with this one. 1 Corinthians 13. You say, Adam, okay. So I still have this, this shame voice in my head. Well, let me throw out a couple questions for you. Ultimately, the scriptures teach that what guilt should do is open me up to lead me to my Savior, to confess my sin and repent and find life. It's ultimately what guilt should drive me to do. Now, a lot of times, though, we're like, no, wait a minute, I just feel bad, I'm not sure why. And here's the deal. Godly sorrow, the scriptures teach, lead to life. 
worldly sorrow leads to death. So again, there is a sorrow that I can feel that's going to give me life. You say, well, how, what's the difference? How do I know the sorrow that I have in my head, the shame that I have? Is it good or bad? Well, here's the thing. Does it lead you to more of faith, hope, and love? 1 Corinthians 13, I love it. You've probably seen it on Facebook or hanging on someone's wall in their home. Faith, hope, and love. Above these, there is no other. I mean, it endures. So does your shame come from God? Here's the question I asked. Do you have more hope for the future? That would be the first question. You know, it's interesting to me, the times when I've really blown it and I've sinned and I've hurt someone, maybe even hurt some of you, and the times when I've had that sorrow and I stare it down and I look at it and I confess it, you know, in those times, I have phenomenal hope in my heart. Do you know why? Because I see reality, and reality is a gift. I see the opportunity for growth. I see the opportunity for God's grace to work. So, Healthy, godly guilt is going to give me hope for tomorrow. If you don't have hope in the middle of your guilt and shame, at some level, it's probably not of God. The second one, do I entrust myself even more into God's hands? Do I trust him more? Is my faith growing? Or is it throwing me into this, woe is me, I'm never going to make it, I'm not enough, I'm, I'm, I, I. Shame makes us so self-absorbed. Godly guilt is going to instead turn me outwards and say, God, wow, you are in control. I trust you. And the third one is, can I feel his love? Do I feel his love? In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your mistakes, you've confessed, great, do you feel his love? If no, it's probably a shame and a guilt that's not healthy and it's going to take you to some pretty dark places. Again, I'd say too often... We live as if Christ, what he did, was not enough. Is it enough for you? Is it enough? Let me end with, we're going to end with this video. It's a video clip. Um, It's from the movie Inside Out. We've been sharing clips throughout this movie. I've saved this clip for the end. Now, some of you haven't, how many of you have not seen the movie? Can I see hands? Still a lot of you. Okay, let me, let me set this one up. I hope this clip works because this clip so ties into the core of the movie that if you didn't see the movie, I, you may miss some of the impact of this clip, but I, I think it will work. Here's the clip. So the, the premise of the story, you have Riley, who's a little girl, and in, the movie's happening inside her head. Joy and sadness get lost. They get, they, they're trying to find their way back to the control center of Riley's head. So it's very imaginary. So here we have in this clip, we have the, the um, memory dump. So anything that gets wiped out of the head, all your memories that you forget, you know, all your past boyfriends and girlfriends and imaginary friends, all those things, they kind of, they go in there and it's gone, it's wiped out. Joy happens to end up in the memory dump and she doesn't know how to get out. She's there in the memory dump with Riley, the girl's imaginary friend named Bing Bong. And the two of them are trying to figure out how to get out, how to get out of the memory dump. And they remember uh, Bing Bong and, and Joy, um, Riley had this wagon this imaginary wagon that would take her to the moon one day. It's powered by song. So watch what the song does for Bing Bong and Joy. Go ahead and catch this clip. That clip makes me think of Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You see Bing Bong hanging down there? He gave up his life, and it made him happy. It made him happy. Jesus gave up his life for you and for me to set us free, to save us, and it brought him joy. Oh, there's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache. You see Jesus wrestle with it. So I guess I'd rest, end with this question. We're going to go to communion. Too often we live as Christ, what he did for us is not enough. 
Is it enough for you? See, what communion is, communion is communing. The word communion, it means to commune. Commune is to converse or to talk together, usually with profound intensity, intimacy, to interchange thoughts and feelings. That's what you're doing with your Savior, with your God, with the one who has made you. God's character, in other words, in that story, it wasn't Joy's singing that got her to the top. What got her to the top? Bing Bong jumped out of the wagon. God's character not my intrinsic worth, is the base of my connection with him. Oh, you have worth and value. He loves you. You're made in his image. He is for you. But it's not your worth and value that brings you into communion with him. It's his character. He's merciful. He's loving. He's gracious. He's come and offered life and life to the full. Are you willing to step out and confess and say, God, here I am, all of me. I'm going to be honest before you. Again, the terrible danger for those of us who would call ourselves Christians is not falling into sin. We're already there. It's really falling away from total reliance on what Christ already did for us. So in just a minute, the ushers are going to come, and they're going to pass out some bread, a little cracker, and some juice. Nothing magical about it. But it's for those of you in this room that would say, I am a Christian. If you're not a Christian and you can't become one right now by simply saying it again, you become a Christian by saying, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior who cleansed me of my sin. His name is Jesus. I believe, I trust in that promise. Then you're a Christian. You become born again. So if you're not and you can't become one now, let this element pass. Just wrestle and sit and ask, who is God? Why am I not willing to take that step? But this is for the rest of us in the room. Those of us who are saying, yeah, I'm a Christ follower. And this bread and the cup simply are a tangible way to involve all of our senses and just reminding us of what he has done for me and saying it is enough. His broken body, his shed blood is enough so that I can commune and connect with my God. So again, I'm going to ask the ushers to come now. They're going to pass it out as as you get it. Just hold on to it. And then the the teams behind me, they're going to play a song for us to kind of take in and reflect. And then we'll pull back together and uh, read some verses and actually take the bread and the cups. Let me pray as they get ready to pass it out. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his grace and mercy. Thank you for your character that ultimately drives our connection and communion with you. God, we can commune with you. We can feel. We can cry. We can hurt. We can laugh. We can talk face-to-face with you because of Jesus. Thank you for that. And then that drives out shame and guilt. God, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.